Primal Chaos. Hey guys, Corey here, aka Primal Chaos. Welcome to the very first in a hopefully a long series of Primal Casts. The idea of this concept, it was, it's a long time coming. I wanted to tackle interviews with artists in the same way that I tackle my reaction videos, which is to go in depth into what really makes things tick. I want to understand the artists. I want to ask them the more deep questions, the less ephemeral ones, the ones that you know, really cut to the core of who they are and why they do what they do. And I think hopefully this comes across that, that way in this interview. I was a little nervous. Like I said, I've been wanting to do this for a long time and I've been absolutely gifted the opportunity to speak to somebody who I believe is probably one of the most articulate, intellectual, beautifully creative and enigmatic front men slash composers in the business right now. And that's Raul Reynolds from Enter Shikari. And, you know, to, to be even afforded this opportunity to speak to this gentleman is, uh, you know, it's well beyond my wildest dreams as far as, you know, you know, kicking this off. And so hopefully, you know, this will lead to more of this sort of stuff. So if you really like it, make sure you like and, and comment and help the algorithm. Go check it out on all the podcast platforms and stuff as well. Uh, if it's not there now, it'll be up very shortly. Man. All right. We had a great conversation. It was supposed to be a hot 20 minutes. I got carried away. I lost track of time and we ended up with about 40 minutes of dialogue. So, you know, stick around. It's a, I believe it's a really interesting conversation and I hope you enjoy it too. Here we go. This is Raul Reynolds from Enter Shikari. Straight up, I, I got to tell you, I'm actually a new fan of you guys. And we'll get into that. But That's awesome. Thank you. I, I, did, a, I did a deep dive into It Hurts today. And I, the, the hook is living in my head rent free. It's like, it's literally just will not leave my head. And that was actually one of the talking points I, I had sort of written down is that one of the consistent things, like you guys are really diverse sonically, right? But one of the consistent things is you always have really strong, powerful, singable hooks. And I was kind of wondering, is that something that sort of comes to you naturally? Like, I understand you do most of the writing, right? And then you sort of get the band to come in and lay down parts and record it all in the box and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, yeah, I I think like melody is just like instilled in me. You know, I, I grew up in a hardcore punk scene. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, aggression and like dynamics and emotion, that's all there. But like before that, you know, I, like anyone, I grew up with my parents playing the music that they listened to. So everything right. from the Beatles to Queen, Mm. Um, my dad was a DJ, so he predominantly uh, DJed Motown and Northern Soul. Yeah, so right I on. grew up with a, a basement full of Motown records and Soul oh. records. <laughs> um, so you know that 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 was my you know when you say the the kid in a candy store that was me like as a like eight year old going down and just playing Soul records and just dancing and sing along with to myself you know literally. Um, yeah, so yeah. melody is everything like uh, it's 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 the first thing we kind of we're drawn to um and i think even though we you know later as a person i was very lucky to have all these influences and mm. music shoved down my throat from all across the musical spectrum mm -hmm. and i'm forever grateful for that um but yeah melody was was the first thing and it's it's the thing i i sort of consider the most important if i had to decide at gunpoint <laughs> yeah oh, absolutely but it really does it's, it stands out with your music you know because you, you seem to have these really big catchy hooks and like pre-choruses and things like that but like you know you, you save all of the intricate sort of technical textural sort of stuff for your verses and and maybe like the, the breakdown of the middle eight and stuff but there's always some sort of like 
something that's just super memorable, you know? And and I guess that does sort of play into those early influences of Motown stuff because that literally was all about, like, just great hooks and melodies and things like that. Mm. Would you say, say around the time of, like, Take to the Skies, what would you say was the driving force influence, like, surrounding the band at that point? Like, because it's to me that album is a lot more sort of genre-specific. It's, it's, it's real innovative, um, but it definitely sounds like an album from that era, you know, like that sort of like yeah. the early days of like this, you know, screamo sort of things, that, you know, that sort of uh, metalcore was kind of starting out, that sort of thing. Would you say, what, like compared to today, like if you had to sort of go, okay, back then the driving sort of inspiration genre-wise behind the band was X and sort of currently now what do you sort of look towards for like inspiration, I suppose? Yeah. Um well, yeah, it's always been super broad. You know, back then, um, we sort of had our two worlds. We had our, like, I guess in the broadest terms, it was just the alternative scene. But, like, hardcore punk was my my sort of main draw. Um, you know, lyrically, emotionally, you know, bands that were, like, absolutely crazy like local hardcore bands that we'd be uh getting into but when we're singing about things that were important you know that was like mm. such a draw for me mm. um and then we had i guess like again in a broad sense dance world but like mm. specifically like jungle drum and bass mm. yeah. um and back then no it's probably too early for dubstep so yeah it was mainly just jungle and mm. drum and bass bit of trance um mm-hmm. rob was a massive like trance and happy hardcore and all these happy like, hardcore. I was going to say like, that <laughs> really, yeah, really yeah. big in like the the nineties and stuff. Yeah, I was I was um, working in record so yeah, stores was... back then, so I know all about that that sort of genre. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, honestly, yeah. That, that's the thing. Like, I, I've got a, a couple of things written down about like there's just so much. Like, I, I've literally got that written down. In, I'm getting references in in your music to nineties drum and bass, eighties synth pop. You know, like your Depeche Modes and mm. things like that as well. Um, uh yeah and then you got metal metal core stadium rock it's like just hip-hop and it just it it just boggles the mind that you somehow managed to get all of these things into sort of like um one cohesive band sound like because you can't play one of your songs without going oh that's definitely into shikari right and yet somehow you you seem to draw from all of these sort of influences one of the other things i was thinking like is obviously me having the perspective of just sort of smashing through your catalogue very recently, I, I sort of have the perspective of not sort of living with the albums in in real time, like when they came out. And so I can sort of really classically see like this evolution. And, and at first I sort of checked out uh, A Kiss for the Whole World, Nothing is True. Um, and then I thought I better check out some old stuff. So I, I threw on Take to the Skies. And, I, and again, I was like, wow, Take to the Skies really sort of feels like an album from that era. It sounds like that genre. Um, but with, you know, your kind of little intricacies and idiosyncratic little end of Shikari moments, you know. But then, and I was sort of thinking, oh, wow, okay, so in the last two albums, they've really sort of diversified and branched out and just become, like, way more, less encumbered by genre. And But then I started filling in the gaps in between and realised you actually found your voice as a band way earlier, like pretty much like the it was kind of like the genesis was take to the skies but then very quickly you sort of change your sound if anything it's more like production wise probably like more like overarching concepts for the albums and stuff like that have become more solidified but it's it's really interesting how you guys sonically have kept it pretty real would, would you agree <laughs> yeah the uh, take to the skies 
really is like almost a live album. You know, we recorded the whole thing in two weeks. Um, it was it's it's incredibly like raw. Mm. Uh, my my, I find it hard to to listen to now because my voice is so unprocessed by today's <laughs> standards, but also by possibly by the the standards of the, that day as well. Um, and I actually was ju- was just being diagnosed with vocal nodules. Right. So okay. my my lasting memory of that of that. Uh, recording session is quite painful like literally physically Mm. painful um so like yeah it's just such a raw album and it it kind of just captures the live sound like straight out the box you know of what Enchikari were doing then Mm. um whereas common dreads second album that was like our first real studio album you know we had Mm. a a named producer in, in in andy gray uh, although interestingly, he's from Dance World. You know, he's mm-hmm. he predominantly produces like house and trance, and um, so that was, uh, you know, we just learned so much and were able to. Do you think that, that that's where some of the broaden our palette? Do you think that's where some of your influence? Obviously, you guys were fans of those, those genres, but do you think working with him as a producer back early in those days opened up the palette a little bit for you guys, as a like in regards to sort of how you sort of piece together arrangements and stuff like that? Yeah, I, it just gave us the confidence, I think, firstly. Um, you know, because before Takes the Skies, we were a band in a beat-up male van, um, <laughs> just going up and down the country for four years playing. Mm-hmm. And whilst we were building up a bit of a uh, like an audience, like the our peers, our industry, like no one sort of even sniffed at us. So mm-hmm. there was... So a lot of, um, you know, sort of we're not meant to be here, imposter syndrome kind of stuff mm. going on. So when a big name producer goes, this is super interesting. I love rock, but I'm mainly into dance world. Do you want to, you know, do do something together? We were like, just like, hell yeah. Um, mm. So that just boosted the confidence. And, and, you know, obviously in the studio, he had a load of like interesting kit and synths. Mm. So I was able to literally broaden my software and hardware um, and yeah, obviously that album is an, an explosion of like uh, breadth, really. Um, mm. And 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 that's and the then I'd say Flash Flood, the third album, it becomes a bit more refined. It's like focus. It's like okay, this is this is End Shikari now. This is we we kind of found where we fit in in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's always interesting seeing that evolution because you know you see so many bands that never really even make it to that third album, you know, and you kind of wonder what, what the possibilities could look like if they sort of had the, the, the longevity to really sort of sink their teeth into becoming who they are. Cause I talk on my channel a lot about, I'm not a big fan of genre as a, as a, as a concept. I think it stifles creativity, right? I've, I've said this a number of times in my reactions and stuff like that. And I think what it is, is you end up with a whole bunch of bands who are trying their best to sound like, the people that they admire, right? And so once they sort of hit that level and they're creating something that sonically sounds just like what, you know, their peers are doing, they feel like that's success. And and so if you say, well, I'm an ex, like my band is an X genre band or whatever. Um, and, and I think sometimes what happens is, you know, bands will do a couple of albums and they'll break out of that if they're lucky. And then they can sort of go, you know what, I'm, I'm evolving as a person, I'm a bit more mature, I'm going to, sort of listen to some different things and they start bringing in other stuff. A lot of times a lot of fans will disappear during that period, but it's just like that, that yeah, genre, genre kind of like, it's a great way to sort of classic categorize things simply in broad strokes, 
but I just, I feel like oftentimes it just sort of, it, it sort of, there's, there's a very few bands that sort of stand out from the crowd, especially if they come up through a genre. And that's what I found most interesting, interesting about you guys is that, you know, very quickly you sort of steered away from what everyone else was doing and, you know, just unapologetically doing what you do. And it's, you know, it's right up my alley because I can hear all those influences like, you know, you know, Queen and the Beatles and stuff like that, but without you ever sounding like you're trying to ape those styles, right? Oh, amazing. Yeah, mm. it, it's, um, it, you know, when I think back, especially to those early days, we were uh, berated, you know, we had really quite visceral hatred from people from like mm. genre purists, you yeah. know, like yeah. on both sides, you know, we had like metalheads would just either like, bottle us or just stand there like that for the whole time. Like, <laughs> you weren't you know, metal enough for them. You? you weren't dance enough for those yeah. guys. <laughs> it, was a, it was a lot of that, you know, And but it was more, it wasn't even, I think it was the, uh, the mixing pot that they hated, you know, like how dare you bring a synth to mm. like a metal gig. Um, and for us, it was normal. It was like, because we didn't really grow up in a defined you know, rigid scene. And we had all these influences, you know, Rory, our guitarist, his elder brother was a drummer bass DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, like Chris was, was kind of into rock, but again, he had loads of like older influences, like 80s stuff. And, and he's very much the green guy as well. Um, and then, yeah, we had all the dance influences. Uh, I studied classical music, learned the trumpet mm. as a kid. So we had for me when i was writing music i never like used references I, I it was only like years into being a songwriter that i realized that people often sit down and they'll literally have a song and they'll say okay we need to write a song that's like this mm-hmm. and that to me is anathema that's like what that's mm. that takes all the joy all the sort of sudden you know happy mistakes and just like going down rabbit holes and you know, if you're focused on making a very specific thing, it just that would take all the fun out of it for me. So yeah, it's something yeah. that Shikari have always, luckily, just not not been about. And and, and genre, it, it's just a it's just a, a a convenience for conversation. That's yeah. all it yeah, is. That's how and, I like, see know, it what's too. that band? You know, they're a bit like this genre. Okay, you sort of gives gives you a ballpark. You know, but that's all it is. Otherwise, like you say, yeah, it's a it mm. doesn't aid creativity. It, it's interestingly like. Uh, Going through sort of like, you know, I started taking notes when I started listening to the music and it's funny how much my notes have changed throughout that process because I had some really sort of trite questions about lyrics and things like that. Um, and, you know, I, just the other day I was just doing some final sort of Googling and just looking around and, you know, trying to find any information that, that would have been pertinent to discuss. And then I came across the the, the books. I had no idea. It just it turned up on, on your website. I'm like, oh, what is this? And then, you know, so then I had a question that was roughly something along the lines of, you know, do you start, you know, co- the composition of lyrics? Some people will sit there and write poetry and then they'll sort of massage that into a melody and stuff like that over music. Some people will have a tune and they'll just hum something until lyrics sort of come to them and stuff. And, you know, I guess the question is, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're more of a write the poetry up front kind of guy. Would that be true? Um, yes and no. Uh, I, I suppose recently I've tried to not really have any sort of formula, but mm. historically it's, I'll, I'll write poetry or just sometimes just like one liners, mm-hmm. um, almost like a comedian would write, you know, they've yep. got their little, 
here's the punchline, you know, um, do a lot of that. But when it actually comes to adding them to songs, I'm very much, again, melody comes first. So I've got a melody and I'll just like scat, scat the vocal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it'd be like, right, how am I, can I fit anything that I've already written into this melody that would actually work and not feel forced or do I need to craft something new? And, And often at that point, the 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 pre-written stuff just becomes an influence I, it's very rare that I actually get something that f- happens to fit you know perfectly mm. all the the intonation and the rising and, and fall uh, of, of the of the pitch and everything works with this lyric that that's quite rare but um maybe that's, yeah, maybe it's something that's part i still of, like to do anyway maybe that's part of the reason why you you can come up with such strong hooks is that you're willing to throw away a particular cadence or something if it's not like if lyrically it's not going to fit you'll change it you know, some people I think get really stuck in. There's a particular line that just has to be in the song, and if you if you sort of can't make it fit, or if you can't find a nice follow up line, then it's just it's it's costing you brain cycles to try and figure it out. You might as well just dump that line and come up with something else. And there's always a good option. You know, that's the thing about creativity. You, you know, as as once you step away from getting sort of locked into this must be how it is, then all of a sudden everything's a possibility, right? Um, yeah. Everything is possible. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah like I, I wrote i wrote down a talking point here and it's probably better that i just read it lyrics seem to be a vital centerpiece particularly in the case of nothing is true there seems to be a quiet frustrated optimism uh for the pathway of human potential how do you remain optimistic when the global politics is becoming more and more dystopian crossing the rubicon is pretty like it's you know fairly a dire perspective um it's cheerful but it's it's a dire sort of perspective you know is that how do you, how do you maintain like there's always you know there's always an optimism even even when it seems like you're sort of coming down on the way things are and stuff like that it's almost like there's there's always a possibility for change there yeah i think i've been, i've thought about this a lot and obviously um anyone that that's read uh, the book treaties on possibility i go into it a lot in there but even mm-hmm. my thinking has kind of um evolved since then i for me, the reason that it's almost easy or should we say natural to stay optimistic is because my anger and frustration doesn't derive from human nature. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that we're like some flawed species that's selfish um, and uh, is is violent and... Um, is all about self-maximization. Um, mm-hmm. And when you look out at the world today, you you could be convinced that that is actually the case and that's the who we are as creatures. But mm. it's who we are within this system. The, mm. the system that we're within, and I mean that, I guess, predominantly economically, but in, in a real broad sense, the system um, encourage us, encourages us and requires us to be self-interested mm-hmm. it's that's mm-hmm. the only way to get profit um mm-hmm. to survive you know literally we must think of think of ourselves and therefore compassion empathy community all these things are actually uh difficult within a kind of capitalistic system a market-based system whatever you want to call it that, that we live in um so therefore I'm always optimistic because I can know we just need to change the apparatus around us. We don't need to change our, like our genomes, you know, we don't need Mm -hmm. to change our DNA. 
Mm. Uh, we're an incredibly adaptive um, species. We can uh, change so easily and we just have to have the right influences, um, the right uh, structure in place to allow us to become what we need to become to survive on the one planet that we have. It's, it's, it's funny, like everybody likes the story of, of a hero, right? Somebody do it going above and beyond and being selfless and, and all that. But it's, it's, the problem is in society that's costly, right? It's not easy to sort of make those concessions necessary to be selfless and to be involved in, you know, ra- you know being, being the, the rising tide that rises, raises the ships around you and things like that. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and you're right. I think it is. I think it's it's not so much human nature; it's the system. Yeah, I, I kind of tend to think along the same lines. It seems you guys do a lot of DIY as well. Like I've noticed you you popping up as producer fairly often, and and uh, you know, what would you say the benefits are of maintaining creative control in that? Like you guys do a lot of your own production, mixing that sort of thing, and then further to that, like you, you have your own label as well. Do you is that is there benefits to that? Is there also downsides to doing it that way? Yeah, there's, you know, there's always pros and cons. Um, for us, it's been a headspace that we've kind of naturally fallen into. One, because, again, going back to the hardcore punk influence, you know, d- discovering uh, like American hardcore and the way that they subverted the mainstream music industry and started their own labels and mm. their own distribution uh, um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, secondly, out of uh, a necessity, really. So as I was saying, you know, labels didn't touch us um, back in the early days. And, and it was like, okay, if we want to get our music out there, we, we've got to. So, you know, we bought a, a CD printer like back in the day and we'd, <laughs> we'd be there printing CDs that we recorded in our garage. That's um, true DIY, equipment. man. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. There. <laughs> equipment that we begged, stole and borrowed. Um, yeah, no, it's... Uh, and we've just kind of kept that. Now, that's not to say that we haven't had little forays um, into, uh, like, you know, we, our second album was on a major label. It was on Interscope in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had, so we've seen kind of lots of sides to the, the way to doing everything. And I think where we are now is just, uh, I don't really see us changing. Like, we're on So Records, which is pretty much the only truly independent label left in the UK, really. Mm. Um, you know, they don't have like a, a, a board of directors and shareholders to, to please. They're, they're not mm. a subsidiary of a major label. It's, it's very independent. Um, and so we still have all the control. We have a great team. Um, and all that stuff's really important. And then with the, the actual music creation, yeah, like production, it took me, uh, looking back, I'm pretty frustrated in myself that I didn't, step into production world sooner um but again imposter syndrome social anxiety <laughs> all the classic things just just stopped me um but yeah the, the the spark was the album that i started my journey there and co-produced it with david coston and, and learned so much from him learned so much from dan weller who produced the two albums before that mm. um and then i just i just found that there were so many points where i'd have an idea and sometimes it's quite difficult to verbalize an idea. Mm. Um, and, and, I'll be, and it'll just sort of disappear because I'm not the, I'm not the one, you know, with the mouse at the, at the door. Um, and 
that's just started really frustrating me. So yeah, I just it was I thought it was just time to 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 step up. Like I've been, you know, I've been producing like remixes and, and learned a lot of my production from like drum and bass. I did a lot of that kind of stuff. But like rock is is different. You know, you have to have a whole different uh knowledge base in terms of engineering, especially like drums and guitars and things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just it took a while, but yeah, I'm I'm super glad that now those ideas that would often just kind of whittle away because I wasn't the producer um now mm. don't whittle away and i think you can tell from the last two albums there's a there's a breadth and there's a kind of dedication to like intriguing effects and you know things that have just it just adds another level of creativity really yeah 100 percent. now here's here's the deep dark artist question though right now being that you're in complete control of all of this how do you determine when a song's done when do you stop tinkering because that's me. I'm in perpetual tinker mode, man. I can't get anything out because I'm always just tweaking and tinkering and and driving myself insane about mixes and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I'm I am too. Like it's um, I can't remember who said it now, but they you know they said that a a, a piece is never finished; it's merely abandoned. Yeah, that's and that it. is <laughs> that's the case. You know, you get to a point where it's like, is this good enough? Um, and that's well, you, do you, you have know, any regrets? Do you, do you, I mean, do you, do you look back on anything that you like, maybe it was a, an amazing song that you really wish you'd just tighten the screws a little bit more on, or maybe it's something that, you know, you sort of look back and go, I can't really listen to that song or that album or anything like that. Mm. Um, I mean, there's bound to be, but uh, I, I, I think the mindset that I'm in now is that my problem is I'm like too much of a perfectionist. So I'll get too, uh, hit up about like tiny details and then when i do come back to listen to something two years later i'm like this was great mm. like why why did i think that i didn't quite get the compression on the <laughs> snare top like good enough you know like yeah it, yeah it's um i i think i'm trying to convince myself that no one not, not so much no one cares but no one is living the music as you are you know no one's Mm. there at every stage of it like they will not notice they want an overall vibe that Mm. intrigues them and like emotionally grabs them that that's it um Mm. so yeah i i think in the past i've 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 been pretty regretful but like now i'm just like it's just a waste of energy (laughs) yeah I love that. going through uh I, i notice there's a tendency there to have like really audacious sort of album opening things like, you know, with uh, mm. Kiss for the Whole World's got a big brass fanfare. Uh, nothing nothing is True has that sort of cool piano part that just reminds me so much of She's a Little Runaway by Bon Jovi. I don't know if you know that song. But that... Yeah, right? Nice. Yeah. It just, when I first heard it, I'm like, you know, but dude, that's how old I am. I'm giving myself away there. But uh, you know, you know things like albums that can grab you by the throat the second you turn them on, like Muse's Absolution album with the piano, dung, 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 and it just sounds like the world's coming to an end. You know, um, that really make a statement. Do you? Is that just a happy accident? Like when do you, when you're putting an album together, do you go, okay, we're going to start here. This song's going to have a big intro so that it can sort of lead into it, or is it just a happy accident that you wrote a song with a big opener and you're like, we should really put that at the start so that it really kicks the album off. Like, or do you write the song and then tag an intro on to sort of open the album? In terms of literally how it happens, that relies on my memory, and I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think I think sometimes I can be writing 
you know, I'll write a riff and I'll be like, oh, this feels like it could be like the first thing on an album. And it immediately, mm-hmm. I'm there, I then, I'm writing the song with that mindset. But mm-hmm. sometimes it can just turn out like that. But what I will say is I probably spend like 25% of the time, like I, I spend 25% more time on the first track of an album and the last track. In terms yeah. of like overall like production, in terms of like crafting the song, um, for, like the album opener is, yeah, is so important. Um, it's yeah, it's first impressions, isn't it? It's obviously it's like anything, um, but I love something that it grabs you in some way. And I think we felt, even though, I mean, I, I love that you've honed in on the the, the first track, obviously, because it, it clearly means a lot to me. But like, I think there is there's still like a a lot of diversity. You know, if you go back to like uh, System Meltdown and the appeal and the mind sweep, like those both opening tracks are like very slow and they're like sort of luring you in and they're like mm. kind of scary and tense. Um, mm-hmm. But then at the same time, like the great unknown is kind of straight in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I love all these different ways that you can kind of lure people into an album. Um, I guess it's the yeah. same as gigs, right? You want to really kick off a, a gig like on a tour or something with something that's going to just raise the roof. But at the same time, uh, one of the greatest gigs I've been to in Australia was um, there's a local band. I don't know if they if they've made it overseas as much. Called the Butterfly Effect. Do you know those guys? Um, I went yeah, to one yeah. of their shows. Yeah, I went to one of their shows in like here in Sydney, and they started with a really slow ambient song. You know, with and then Clint jumps up on top of the speakers and a spotlight hits him and he's just going into it, just like beautiful vocals. And I'm like, I've never even considered this. Like every you know every show I've ever mm. been to has been let's just balls to the wall, smash everybody in the face, and then we'll dial it back on song three. It's the same, I guess. Like yeah. what you're saying, you can open an album with something really subversive or something really in your face, you know? Uh, that's that's really Absolutely. So I wanted to really get into the orchestral compositions as well. Perfect example, when we're talking about arranging an album, like put, piecing it together, beginning, ending, and so on, it seems to me like particularly Nothing Is True has like a very specific... Uh, framework as far as the way that the album's laid out, it kind of was very, to me, reminiscent of like a classical album, right? The way you've got these little reprises um, and, you know, you've got callbacks to the other songs. Then there's this giant classical opus in the middle, Elegy for Extinction. With that album particularly, was there a roadmap? Because like, you know, it just even like, like what is it, track four? Song oh, Bolt uh, like Seeing Off the Face of the Earth. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. It's it's Because to me, that's like a title track, right? Because you, you're basically mm. name-checking the album in that song. And then you reprise that at the end as well. You know, th- that to me seems almost like you were kind of going for, like, you know, when you flip over the back of a classical album, it looks like, you know, like, you know, something by Mozart or something will have very similar titling structures and things like that. W- yeah. Was that a, an influence or am I just imagining things? I- <laughs> No, totally, totally. Like I, I, I love that whole, uh, yeah, way of of structuring tracks, of structuring albums. I mean, you know, it's it's they're pieces, really. Like mm-hmm. the, the waltzing off the face of the earth. The, the session as we were uh, recording it was one session, um, mm. but it, it, I, I try not to, to go into the kind of world where you've got eight minute songs and. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I don't think anyone has the attention span for that anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> Talk to um, Tool, man, they'll so disagree. 
yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I've I've always loved the way um, classical is is kind of not just split up into tracks, but also like labeled. So you know, we have the the last track waltzing off the, off the face of the earth, Piangevole, which mm-hmm. is the the more like somber. Um, uh, kind of emotional dulcet like version of the track and um yeah i just yeah it was a beautiful that. way to close the record too thank you talk about um elegy for extinction where do you start with something like that like because because i'm assuming again you, you composed that all yourself as well yeah i was i was very lucky in that one to have george fenton like he is one of my favorite like modern composers um and i was lucky enough to be introduced to him and had lunch with him and we just got on really well. And he's like this amazing experienced composer. You know, he's done a lot of the uh, the BBC Planet Earth um, music um, and lo- lots of other like nature wow, stuff really as cool. well as the films. And, you know, he's, his, his CV is incredible. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he's, he, to me, he, he, um, he captures the uh, the very sort of british classical tradition like you know a lot of his music sounds like elgar or something and and mm-hmm. i love i love elgar mm-hmm. um and so yeah i just basically went to him with this with this piece um and there are a few things that he just was able to really help me on because i've never you know i can play the the trumpet i've arranged for strings and things like that but arranging mm-hmm. for a full fucking symphonic orchestra Dude. is <laughs> i can't beast. even imagine um, can't even imagine yeah so yeah he very patiently uh sat with me and we arranged it together um and he helped me even with like some of the uh the harmony um some of like the the chord changes and things we slightly adapted mm. um yeah he was he was just guided me through the process but it was you know as as i felt like it was down to like christmas as an eight-year-old levels of excitement you know yeah, it right. was, <laughs> when we when we got there when we finally like took the the piece to prague and recorded it with the prague symphonic it was just otherworldly you know mm. seeing this piece that i'd Can't like imagine essentially yeah. first made in my bedroom just on logic you know with all these like mm. yeah it's, midi, funny, how, it's funny how like virtual instruments don't quite sound exactly the same <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just it never yeah it never yeah. captures it but yeah it was beautiful so what really strikes me about that piece is it just so wonderfully captures the emotion of i think what to to me like and again this is one of those things where the person you know when you've released the song into the world the meaning disappears and it just becomes up to the interpretation of the listener so i'm going to have some poetic license here but to me it sort of feels like you you're sort of going for and correct me if i'm wrong it's you're sort of like the earth you know, the world as it is, is just beautifully going along. It's joyful. It's just, it's, it's energetic. It's vibrant and vivid. And then, you know, just to, in the, the third act of the song, so to speak, it really takes a dark turn and into turmoil and disorder and disarray and stuff like that. Is that sort of an allegory for the way you see like the, the world, you know, and, and the way things are going? Is that sort of like, is it summing up the, the vibe of the album in that respect? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the piece is very literally like uh, the storyline of life on our planet. You know, mm. it starts off with these little fluttering strings, these, um, you know, you could, you could think of those as like the microbes as the first little bits yeah. of life. Um, and, uh, you know, with more and more instruments get added, which is the 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 uh, the family tree of species, you know, kind of mm. branching out. Um, and it just, yeah, then it becomes quite glorious and there's kind of a um 
sort of a fanfare-y, uh, the, the main kind of melody, I suppose. Um, and that's uh, kind of the introduction of like consciousness mm-hmm. and knowledge, passing knowledge from generations to generations. And it's very grand and it's very noble. And then, of course, the song begins to to take quite a uh, discerning turn. It's which super is where emotionally we're kind of at. dark. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself an optimist? Um, not. I don't know. Not really. Um, <laughs> I've I've always try and like walk the line of optimism and pessimism, and just try and try and aim for realism, which mm-hmm. is just a bit of a cop-out answer, really. Would, would um, you consider yourself more of an observer of the human condition? Like, it's almost like, you know, you're future historians, right? Like, that's the term mm. I noticed from the books and stuff. It, it, do you consider yourself a historian of, like, the, the I guess, the the nature of, of life and, and humanity and the future of humanity? Yeah, I think it's important to at least aim to think that way because otherwise you just get dragged in to tribalism you know Mm. you'll have a this is my point of view this is my view on the world this is my politics Mm. everyone else can get fucked you know which is basically where we are that's 98 percent of online rhetoric right now is literally what you said yeah yeah um so i think it's important to just always try and understand people try and be empathic um and always think of the broader perspective that's like i I kind of think that is one of Enishikari's core, like fundamental pillars of what we're trying to do, like try and broaden people's perspective, try and give them that moment where they can come away from their immediate like worries and anxieties and, you know, oh, my education, my job, my family, and just actually think of where is our species going? You know, like mm. we, we so rarely get the opportunity to actually think about those things. And I think music is such a great way to draw people into thinking about bigger ideas. Yeah, I think that that's it couldn't be more true. I think it's very hard for anyone to find anything to connect to outside of the, you know, the the, the modern day poets, which are like obviously musicians who who come up with ways of re like like focusing the world through their prism. And giving you perspective and you can either join in on that or you can disagree with it or, or whatever but i think that you know like even I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the artist from your neck of the woods named ren the the mm. audience that he's been able to capture just through grassroots kind of stuff in very similar to how you guys work it's all diy and and uh no labels and things like that but he's i mean he's number one album in the uk right now on release so it's like but the thing that i've noticed from dealing with his community of of fans is that their their obsession with the message of we can do better i think is is largely sort of the focus of his music and and that's why Mm. the reason i bring that up is because i was noticing a lot of analogs um between you know what you've been doing all these years and your voice and and your your using your platform to sort of almost like to capture you know the the zeitgeist of of what what's happening as far as humanity and the future and, and all this sort of stuff and and he does a very similar thing yeah so i mean that's just that's just an observation from my end but it's uh it's it's a really important sort of platform to utilize because again there's not many platforms that will connect particularly with young people is that a, is that a big responsibility or do you not really think about it too much you just put the music out there and hope people like it <laughs> uh no no yeah i think it's a huge responsibility i think one of the worst 
ways of creating music is by saying is like by shedding all responsibility and just saying it's just music or whatever mm-hmm. because what you're actually doing there is just saying you're not thinking about what you're putting out and there might be aspects of what you're putting out that is actually further encouraging our downfall but just mm-hmm. because you're not asked to think about it you know well, um, money and greed so yeah, is a really uh, big thing. Like it's, you know, that's, that's a topic of conversation for a lot of genres of music, right? It's like, you know, it's all about winning yeah. the game as opposed to yeah. how, can, how can we help everybody win questioning the game? Questioning the game. Yeah, questioning yeah, the yeah. game. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's literally, this is a conversation that I've had with like music fans, music producers, you know. Oh, and, you know, I, I just make pop music, you know, like, this isn't political. It's like, are you joking? Like you're you're making music that it encourages self-maximization above all else, you know, consumerism, you know, all these things that are just like pretty toxic. Mm. Um, it's like you are a political producer, whether you like it or not, my mm. friend. So I guess the last thing is, you know, if you had to sum up the band's career with a mission statement, what would it be? And what's the band's overall message? Yeah, mission statement for me is basically to continue do, doing what music has done over millennia, which is bring people together. You know, whether it's been around a campfire as hunter-gatherers or whether it's at a music festival, it's one thing. It's probably the only thing left in society, in modern society that brings people together indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at sport, teams discriminate you look at religion very discriminate Um, music is really the last open book um and it's almost like a fight to keep it that way all right thank you for sticking around this long there it is now didn't i say he's incredibly thoughtful articulate he's the music that they do is so beautifully diverse and at the same time it's it definitely they 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 definitely have their own voice and their own flavor. So if you're not familiar with Enda Shikari, which would be surprising if you made it this far, and you're not, definitely check out. Particularly, I, I can I can't recommend their latest two albums enough. A Kiss for the Whole World is currently out now. That's their latest album. The one before, Nothing Is True, Everything Is Possible, is also a fantastic album as well as is everything in their catalog. But if you want to just figure out who they are and start out, check out the latest stuff. It's it's really, really good. So if you're watching this at the time of upload, Edith Shikari will be in Australia from December 1st, starting with the Good Things Festival, bouncing around through the major cities there, but also doing sideshows and stuff as well. Uh, check their website for dates. They're absolutely amazing. I can't wait to check them out live. I'll be at Good Things as well on December 2nd in Sydney. So if you uh, see me there, say hi. And don't forget to check out Enter Shikari. They definitely are worth your time. Make sure you hit like and subscribe so you know next time the next Primal Cast episode goes live. I've got to get used to saying that. Yeah, so hopefully upwards and onwards with this stuff, guys. Thank you again, and I'll catch you on the next one.